about that recording. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles 30. There are on that back table some extra handouts from last week. And if you're just tuning in with us here today, we are, uh, we are going through the um, books of the Bible kind of one at a time. Uh, we are slowly moving through them. We're on 2 Chronicles Chapter uh, 30 is where we are. We're going to finish Second Chronicles, God willing, tonight. And Lord willing, next week we'll pick up the next book. Second Chronicles 30. And uh, we had said that this verse over here in verse number 18 is the key verse of the whole book. This is the key. And let's read it right now. 30, Second Chronicles 30, verse number 18. Right at the end of the verse. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. That is the key phrase of the entire book of Second Chronicles. Prepareth their heart to seek God. Four times in the book of Second Chronicles, the Lord brings those two words together, prepare and heart. The only it appears more in the Bible in Second Chronicles. Prepare and heart appear four times in there. We saw last week chapters one to nine is the king reigns and prospers. We see the rise of Solomon, and we see what happens when you prepare your heart. When you prepare your heart, you know what you get? You get good success. Amen. But the rest of the book we're going to look at is a train wreck, brothers and sisters. It's a train wreck. Chapters 10 to 36, if you see on your sheet, it's the devil divides and conquers. And we see in the latter two-thirds of the book, the failure that comes to people of God when they fail to prepare their heart. Brethren, this whole thing is about your heart. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is about your heart. If you'll prepare your heart to seek God, I don't care what the circumstances are in your country, God can take care of you, use you, and give you prosperity and spiritual things. But if you fail to prepare your heart and you just let weeds grow and you just let your Bible go on the side, let fellowship go by the wayside, let prayer become frequent and non-existent, guess what? Cobwebs are going to grow over your soul and God's not going to do anything with you and you're going to end up moving far and far away from Him. Prepare your heart to seek God. And what I'm going to do tonight is I'm just going to kind of cherry pick a few ideas from these, what is it, 26 chapters or so. And the first one is going to be, um, the first big idea is going to be the reign of Rehoboam. The reign of Rehoboam. And the reign of Rehoboam is going to teach us one big truth. The reign of Rehoboam is going to teach us what you will lose for being a fool and failing to prepare your heart. I'm going to tell you right now. I know Brian is sitting in the front. The rest of this book is rough. It is rough. It's like left hooks, right gut, gut punches, you know, right crosses, tap outs, you know, arm bars. It's a rough rest of the book because all you see is king after king after king after king just being a knucklehead, not preparing his heart. And the first one we get is the reign of Rehoboam. And if you look at Second Chronicles chapter 10, please, you see what you lose and what you risk losing when you fail to prepare your heart. Let's take it from chapter 10. Let's look at verse 6. Is it better at home? Better? Sounds, I guess it's working better. All right. 
Okay, cool. All right. Oh, no, listen, don't hold back. All right. No, no, no. Let me start slow. Let me, not, let me start on a one. All right. Let's look at verse 6. And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men that had stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, saying, What counsel give ye me to return answer to this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou be kind to this people, and please them, and speak good words to them, they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel which the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men that were brought up with him that stood before him. I want you to notice what happens. If you know the story, if you jump all the way down to verse number, um, jump down to, well, if you look at verse 13, and the king answered them roughly, and King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the old men. And if you jump down to verse number 16, and all, when all Israel saw that the king would not hearken unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? And we have none inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. And now David, see to thine own house. So all Israel went to their tents. Right there is where the kingdom splits. Right? We have those two tribes are left behind, Benjamin and Judah, stay in the southern kingdom, and all ten tribes right there defect from Rehoboam, and there's a split in the, in the nation, and Rehoboam loses ten tribes. Ten out of twelve, do the math, that's a big number. Why? Because he forsook the old council. You've got to grab a hold of that. He forsook the old advice, the old ways. You know what Jeremiah tells us? Jeremiah 6.16 says, Ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein. Verse number 8 says, But he forsook the counsel which the old men gave him. Brethren, do you understand that what we have in our Bible is a lot of old stuff? (laughs) This is an old book. We sing old hymns. We tell an old story. We have an old faith. We're not looking for anything new, right? We We want to follow the old ways that God laid down. The Bible says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And uh, Rehoboam refused to walk in the old paths. And here's where I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. Like a lot of churches. Yeah. I'm not, I, don't, I don't spy on anybody, but I just know, Laodicean age, we're, we're, we're dealing with a lot of churches and Christian world today. They're looking for new ways to, ready the buzzword? Engage the culture. <laughs> no, you know what the Bible says? Tell the old story. You just keep telling the old story and God will give the increase. I'm not responsible for engaging the culture or figuring out how to turnkey the ideas and make things relevant. I want you to get the help from the Word of God. What the Bible says, just be a witness, be a witness, be a witness. Cast the seed, cast the seed. The results are up to God. I'm just supposed to tell the story and publish the name of the Lord. You know what else they want to do today? They want contemporary worship instead of singing the old hymns. They wanted something that'll move their hips instead of moving their heart, right? And uh, I mean, I heard uh, my pastor in Staten Island say this recently. If you turn mute on a lot of worship services today and watch people rock and roll, it would look like a concert. You wouldn't be able to tell that from the stuff you got saved out of. But uh, that's another thing. And you know what they're peddling? They're peddling new versions of the Bible Instead of sticking with the blessed old book, the one that God has tried and proven and preserved for us. Now you say, what's the big deal with that, Pat? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let me show you the big deal. Now just riddle me this, Batman. If I... I really dated myself there. Um, 
everybody under 30 is like, what are you talking about? Batman doesn't do riddles. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 32. If this is the truth right here, and I keep moving further and further away from it, you know what happens? I'm going to get in trouble pretty soon. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 and look at verse 15. Okay? 15. The Bible says, but Jeshurun waxed fat. That's a name for Israel. They got fat. They got full of themselves. They got prosperous. They got blessed and kicked. Thou art waxen fat. Thou art grown thick. Thou art covered with fatness. Yikes. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. Watch this. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, watch it, to new gods that came newly up whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful and hast forgotten the God that formed thee. When you start moving away from the truth, you end up worshiping a different God. Just because you slap a Jesus fish on it or a cross on it, you start moving away from the God of this Bible, you're going to end up worshiping a different God. I don't think Israel said, you know, let's worship a different God today. They just started changing things, updating things, modernizing things, tweaking things, making it relevant, making it, you know, the way they want it to be. And pretty soon God said, you got so far away, you're not even worshiping me anymore. Listen, if the truth is right here, right? Let's just say this is the truth right here. If I keep moving, if I move six inches a day in a little while, I'm not even going to be in New Jersey anymore. If I keep moving six inches a day, pretty soon I might find myself in a new state, a new place. God says, stay right here. You keep moving away. You're not in the same place spiritually anymore. You're in a new place. You're not worshiping the same God anymore. You're like Israel, worshiping a new God, a God that you've conceived with your mind. Right? The Bible says in the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thereto. You're not supposed to make a God with your hands or with your heart. Right? You're supposed to worship according to spirit and truth. Now, they could take planet Earth. If I was an astronaut, I'm not. I am not going into outer space. We don't belong there. That's just my hobby horse. That's what the Bible says. But if I went up out there to outer space and I got too far away from Earth's orbit, you know what would happen to me? I'd get caught in another planet's pull. And you get further away from the truth and sound doctrine and what God actually said, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get pulled by another spirit, another philosophy, something else that isn't according to the Word of God. You know what we need to do, brethren? We need to stay close. We need to ask for those old paths wherein is the good way and walk therein. Go to 2 John, which is way in the back of your Bible. Uh, 2 John. If you hit Revelation, make a left. 2 John, 2 John, 2 John, look at verse number uh, 9, number 8, 2 John 8, there's only one chapter. You say, Pat, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Because it looks like bad doctrine can cost a Christian his rewards. Look at 2 John, jump down to verse 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Don't you want to get a full reward at the judgment seat of Christ? Don't you want the Lord to say, well done, not eh, not well, you made it. Like, I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, 
how do you know you're serving properly if you're not serving according to the letter of this book and the spirit of this book? If you're doing it the way you think you're doing it, you know, if you're a carpenter and you tried to put a doorway in and said, I don't need to see if it's plumb, I'm just going to kind of eyeball it and do it the way I think it's doing it. That door's not going to close. It's going to jam. It's not going to shut properly because you kind of, you did it the way you kind of thought you should do it. You need to do it according to this rule. Now, keep reading, verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now I know that has a lot of tribulation application, but just take this away. He says over here, let's make sure we don't lose our reward. Then he gives us a warning about not getting mixed up in any bad doctrine. Because you start getting mixed up in bad doctrine, you might start worshiping God the way He doesn't want to be worshipped, and you might start doing things He doesn't want you to do, and you might lose some rewards. And I think, honestly, all this updating that's going on is going to cost a lot of Christians a lot of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, like Rehoboam lost the ability to reign over all those tribes. There's going to be Christians that lose the ability to reign over all God could have had them reign over. That's the illustration. Then go back to Second, uh, go back to Second Chronicles chapter twelve. Making sense so far? Amen. All right. It's a big room. You got to fill it up with all those big amens. All right. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes about his son. You know what, in Ecclesiastes, you know what Solomon refers to Rehoboam as? A fool. He calls him a fool. Now think about this contrast, would you? Solomon starts his reign at 40 years old. You know what Solomon's reign is all about? Wisdom. Solomon starts his reign with wisdom at 40. Rehoboam starts his reign at 41. You know what the keynote of his reign is? Foolishness. They were both the same age. One prepared his heart in the beginning. God gave him wisdom. The other one didn't want to have anything to do with God. And God said, you're a fool. Look at 2 Chronicles 12. You'll see what, what he did. 2 Chronicles 12. Look at verse 13. 2 Chronicles 12, 13. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nama and Ammonitus. Watch it now. And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Do you see the big deal of it is? The difference between Solomon's start and Rehoboam's start is Solomon starts his reign by what? Seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's understanding, 1 Kings chapter 3. And what does Solomon's reign start off as? Prosperity, success. God gives such an increase, he uses it as a picture of his son's millennial reign. Rehoboam starts off by forgetting God and his kingdom falls apart and his kingdom fails. Question, what kind of king do you plan to be? Because God says he's made you his kings and his priests. So you've got a choice tonight, folks, and folks watching at home. What, are you going to be a wise king? Prepare your heart. You're going to be a foolish king. You're going to follow the old ways of this old, blessed old book? Or are you going to follow the new ways, the new advice, the young men and the new ideas? You say, ah, what's the big deal? What are you willing to lose? Are you willing to lose 
your reign. You can't lose your salvation, praise God, but you can lose your reward. You can lose that reign that he had. That's the reward. The reward is to reign. You can lose that. I know it's hard to visualize it. I got to tell you to myself too. We say, well, but I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Praise God I'm saved. Thank God for the blood. I'm glad I'm washed in the blood. But he didn't just save you to give you fire insurance. If he did, he would have plucked you out right there when he saved you. He's training you and he's shaping you so you could do something with him into eternity because he's got a kingdom he's going to establish that's going to have no end and he's looking for people that can reign in that kingdom and he's formatting those people now. The ones that want it now are going to get it later. The ones that don't want it now are not going to get it later. They'll be there. They'll be a part of it, but they won't have all God had for them. And if the Holy Spirit could reach across our congregation and just shake us to realize, my goodness, I don't want to lose all God has for me. I don't want to miss all God has for me. If salvation is this amazing, if peace and joy and forgiveness and hope and fellowship and and, and, and atonement and all these things are amazing, what do you think he's got waiting beyond that? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. I think a lot of Christians out there professing don't love the Lord like they should. Oh, but he knows my heart. Yeah, that's why he said repent, right? Keep going, keep going. Go to 2 Chronicles 15. So here's our second point. That's the first one. That was rough, I know, right? Second one. Right? I told you, it's a rough book, man. It's a rough book. And people, people let me get back in the camera here. Where's my mark? <laughs> people don't like straight preaching anymore. They don't like, they want, you know, I want their ears tickled. They shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And I'm not saying this to you to like, to hate. I'm happy just to be with you guys tonight. I don't care what's going on in any other church anywhere else right now. But I'm telling you, that's the temperature of Christianity right now, folks. You are the oddballs of the oddballs. You are the fringe of the minority right now. Um, second big idea. Uh, that's right. <laughs> King of the Hill. All right. The outward versus the inward. I'll explain what that means. The outward versus the inward. Okay, let's talk about what that means. Judah, and Second Chronicles mainly deals with, the, with Judah, the southern kingdom. Outwardly, Outwardly, there is piety. Inwardly, there is apostasy. And we'll see the correlations to the, even the, where Christians are today. But like Judah's outward piety and inward apostasy, I guess that's what the point is. Judah's outward piety and inward apostasy. Apostasy means like a falling away. Like the professing church today, everything about Judah was outwardly about God. Would you agree on that? Even the names of the kings many times had God's name in them. Abijah, um, Jehoshaphat, right? That prefix Jah, right? Those, those three little letters, Jah, that's, that's a name for God. Jeconiah, right? Um, that's, that's God was actually built into many of these kings' names, Outwardly, it looked like God was all over them. But inwardly, they were falling away from God faster than your whatever falls. I don't know. But look at 2 Chronicles 15. Look at verse 1. 
And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel, that's the north, right? Those are the kingdoms that had defected. Now for a long season, Israel has been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. A prophet comes up and says, hey, Judah, you better stick with God. You better not follow your sister Israel because she's been without anything spiritual for a long time. And Judah's following right behind. And that's why God sends the preacher and the prophet to warn them. Even though you got God all over your names and God, you got the temple there and you got the worship supposed to be there and you're supposed to be the nation that has God in the midst, you guys are going to follow Israel and you're going to end up being just like them. But they didn't listen. Inwardly, the nation was following the north into apostasy. And I'm going to read you the riot act right now. And I'm not going to write all this down, but you could jot some of this down or go back over the recording. Chapter 16 is about a king named Asa. Asa sought the world's physicians instead of turning to God. That's not good. He's diseased in his feet and he's like, I'm not going to seek the Lord. That sounds like a godly individual. When the stuff hits the proverbial fan, who do you turn to? That's a good sign of what's going on inside, not just on the outside. Chapters 17 through 20 is about jumping Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat made all these alliances. He was a good king, but he made all these alliances with wicked kings. He was always jumping, I'm, gonna, I'm with you, I'm with you. He didn't have any stick. He didn't stand against those wicked kings, and he aligned himself with them. Chapter 21, let's look at this one, chapter 21. I'm not going through every king, but I'm just showing you how inwardly these kings are just spiraling out of control. Chapter 21, look at verse 11. Uh, This is about Jotham, not Jotham, this is about Jehoram, 2111, 2111. Jehoram, there's another one with God in his name. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compel Judah thereto. So Jehoram forsakes God and starts leaning the nation further into apostasy and astray. How about chapter 22? Look at chapter 20, verse 4. This one's about uh, Ahaziah. Wherefore, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. Ahaziah ends up worshiping Baal and following the house of Ahab. Ahab is one of the most wicked guys in the whole Bible, a type of antichrist, a horrible king in the northern kingdom. Chapter 24 is all about Joash. You know what Joash did? Joash is saved by a priest named Jehoiada. And when Joash grows up, he actually has the priest's son killed when his son preaches something he doesn't like hearing. How about that? Joash slays the son of the priest who saved his life. And Joash winds up dying sick. God, you know, has a way of settling things. Chapter 25, chapter 25. Let me just show you another one. Chapter 25. Look at verse 14. Here's Amaziah. Let's see what this guy did. 2514. Now it came to pass after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites 
that he brought the gods, small g, of the children of Seir, that's Edom, and set them up to be his gods and bowed down himself before them and burned incense unto them. Amaziah is worshiping the gods of the nation that he just defeated. Isn't that crazy? He's worshiping a loser and a loser god. He beat those gods and now he's going to bow down and worship him. Look at uh, 26. We don't have to read 26. It's about Uzziah. Uzziah didn't respect God's order. He was a king. He thought he could be a priest. He went in there to burn incense before the Lord. You know what God did? Smote him with leprosy, and he ran out of there and was a leper until the day of his death. Chapter 28. We'll look at this one. 28's about Ahaz. 28, verse 1. See how it's getting worse? Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Ahaz is burning his children in the worship of Balaam. These are the kings of Judah, the nation where God was supposed to be, the the so-called godly nation. You ever hear people talk about some nations being a Christian nation and the stuff that's going on in quote-unquote Christian nations? Hey, there is no new thing under the sun, brethren. This was the nation that was supposed to be the godly nation, the light to the nation, the salt of the earth, the one that had the priests, the one that had the temple, the one that had the sacrifices, and the leaders are sacrificing their children to false gods? You wonder why God had them carried away to Babylon? What long-suffering he showed. How about chapter uh, 33? Here's, here's one of the worst ones in Judah. Manasseh, 33. 33. 33. Let's take it from verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. One of the most wicked kings had the longest reigns. That's an interesting thing. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, for he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. Here we have Manasseh worshipping the fallen sons of God, like they did in Genesis 6, like they were trying to do in Genesis 11. He's trying to call them down again. He's worshiping those fallen sons of God again. And you know what? His son Ammon is following suit. I just gave you a a snapshot. You with me so far? I just gave you a quick little run through. But this was the nation of Moses and Joshua. This was the nation of David and Solomon. They're living Worse than the heathen. They're living after the abominations of the heathen. And brethren, can I say, this was the country of Moody and Sunday. This is the country of Sabaka and, 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 and uh, you know, Ruckman, right? This is the country of, of some great preachers and teachers in the past. And we're sometimes living, the people of God, like worse than the heathen. No new thing under the sun, man. No new thing under the sun. Go to 2 Chronicles 27. And I'm right there with you. I don't want to be in that bucket. I want to be in the bucket that's preparing my heart. I don't want to be like these other guys. 2 Chronicles 27. You know in all that mess, 
Only the kings who prepared their heart to seek God had any success. In all that mess, only the ones that wanted God could have success. Look at chapter 27. 27. Look at verse 6. 27, 6. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Do you see that, folks? The right preparation will make you mighty. You want to have a good day tomorrow? You want to have a victorious day tomorrow? Prepare your heart before you step out the front door. You prepare your heart, and God could do something with you. Look at chapter 29. Just walk, Stephen. Just walk. Chapter 29. All right, 29. Go to verse 10. 29, 10. This is Hezekiah. He's another guy that took care of his heart. He was a good king, very good king. He says, when he takes over his reign, now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Hezekiah prepared his heart. Why? Because I want to turn this nation back to God. You want to, you want to do something? You want to make an impact on your family? You want to make an impact on your community? You want to make an impact in your church? You do something in your heart and that'll help turn somebody else back to God. All you can control is this thing. This little house of clay, that's where you can have your own revival. I can't spread my revival fires to you, but I could have a burning and shining light. Maybe somebody else will want to follow that light. And Hezekiah is saying, you know what? I got it in my heart to do this. And Hezekiah was doing something in his heart and preparing his heart because he knew there was a great work God had for him. Right? The, I think it was Hudson Taylor said, don't have your concert first and then tune your instruments. He said, tune your instruments first through the word of God and prayer, and then God will give you that, that symphony. And, and Hezekiah is an example of that. Chapter 31, chapter 31. Chapter 31, look at verse 21. Chapter 31, verse 21. <clears throat> here's, here's God's comment on Hezekiah's kingdom. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. If you seek God and prepare your heart, the Lord prospers a prepared heart. Going to preach tomorrow night at the mission? Prepare your heart. You're going to try to open the Bible with your family this week? Prepare your heart. You're going to try to do some discipleship? Prepare your heart. You're going to go teach Bible study? Prepare your heart first if you want God to take care of it in here if you want God to do something out here. That's the keynote of 2 Chronicles. Prepare your heart to seek God. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Israel is given to us as a great illustration, a great object lesson. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is Bible study, so we're looking at a lot of Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now we're going to talk about the church. Because, if you're there, say amen. Amen. What we saw in Judah back there, we see in the church today, right here. Outward profession but no power inside. Oh, we got tracks, and we got ministries, and we got books, and we got websites, and we got all this Christian stuff. We are more locked and loaded. We got more resources now than Billy Sunday had 100 years ago, that you know guys had, you know, that Hudson Taylor had, that Adoniram Judson had. We got more stuff, and we don't have a thimble full of the power that those guys had. Billy Sunday would come through a town and preach a revival meeting and the bars would close. 
because one preacher came into a town and the Spirit of God was so on that guy that when he preached, the droves came out to see him and the chatter would fall, the Holy Ghost would fall on people and people would be so convicted, they'd give up their booze, they'd give up their stuff just because a revival meeting came through. Where is that stuff? I'm so convicted about that. Now I got concordances and Bible apps and I could tell you how many fourfold mentions are over here, but do I have that power? That's why I like that prayer meeting on Tuesday nights because you know what? It's mellow. It's not fanfare, but right there where you get down on your hands and knees and recognize that you are helpless and need the power of God in your life, that's when God says, oh, about time you asked me. (laughs) Can't do it without me, (laughs) right? And what we saw in Judah... With all this God stuff on the outside is kind of like right where we are today. 2 Timothy 3.5 is not describing the lost. It's describing Christianity in the last days. And he says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He's saying, there's a lot of people outwardly professing Christ, and maybe they're saved, but you know what? There's no power. There's no preparation of the heart. There's no wrestling with God. There's no holiness. That's a Bible word. Holiness. Right? There's none of that. It's just like, yeah, I go to church once in a while. I was talking to one of her sisters here, you know, one of the ladies in church, um, and she was saying, you know, nobody goes to church anymore. She was saying that even like the old school churchgoers don't go to church. None of like the millennials go to church. Even the ones that are professing Christ don't even go to church. It's like, you know, everything just keeps them away from church. It's like, if I can, I will. But, you know, it's such a different vibe, right? You know what Jesus told his people in Matthew chapter 5? He said, ye are the salt of the earth. You know what that means? You're supposed to preserve life. You're supposed to season this planet and be the ones keeping it from rotting away. You know what he told the Christians in Colossians? He said, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. salt. Right? We're supposed to be sharing the word of God, giving the word of God with our lips and our life, so we can be sprinkling that salt, not dumping the salt on somebody's head at the lunch table at work. But hey, when you get a kind word at the job or at the dinner table or an open door to do a testimony of God's goodness, just seasoning that salt, just walking around just with your little spiritual salt shaker, just shaking it everywhere, trying to see if it could bring life anywhere and keep the whole thing from rotting away. But you know what Jesus said? If the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? How do you salt the salt? And if the salt stops seasoning, Jesus said, it's good for nothing. And I think there's a lot of people that profess Christ that are just, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror, am I a good for nothing? Right? He's like, if you're not seasoning the world, if you're not sprinkling, if you're not helping preserve life and keep this thing from rotting away, what good are you? So the Lord said. And the church today as a whole, I don't want to be this. Do you want to be this type of church? I don't. But the Christianity as a whole, Laodicean Christianity as a whole, has an outward profession, but no preserving power because there's no prepared heart. They're outwardly very Christian. They got their Jesus fish on their car. They got their Jesus tattoo on their back. They got, you know, I'd rather memorize a verse. They're going to tattoo themselves with it where they never got. Write it on the table of your heart, not your forearm. But that's another message for another day. But you know what? They got all this stuff going on, and there's no power. 
because inwardly they're dead, they're apostate, they're fallen away. And you know what I think? I mean, we're supposed to be Christians, right? Christ is in our name, Amen. just like it was in the names of the kings of Judah. We're supposed to be Christians, little Christ. That's who we're supposed to be, but we're not. We're not. And you know, and, and in fact, we're making the Lord sick. The Laodicean church makes Jesus sick. He says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You're making me sick. I know, I told you it was tough. I told you it was a tough book, but it's, it's just right where it has to be. And you know, I think really is to blame the leadership. Like the bad kings, a lot of stuff rises and falls on leadership. And like the bad leaders were to blame then, I think we pastors and teachers are the ones to blame today because we're not telling the truth. We're not saying it like it is. We're trying to dip the colors and that impacts, that ripple effects in a bad way. We've got to tell it the way. We've got to have grace and mercy and charity and speak the truth in love. But if somebody asks you a Bible question, like some brother did months and months ago, he says, is this thing heresy? Do you think this is heresy? And I knew when I said the answer that that person was going to be gone. And I had it before God. I said, it's right out of hell. Because we answer to God. To, his, to my master, I stand or fall. Not to you. So I got to be the loud mouth. I got to be spitting and pounding the pulpit. I'm going to do my best to tell it to you the way it is, where it is, how it is, because that's what we need. We need the truth. We need the salt, and we got to take it and season it somewhere else. Go to Ezekiel 22. Let's finish this point in Ezekiel 22, if we could. Ezekiel 22. Told you it was a rough book, rough book, but needful. This is right before judgment's going to fall on them, by the way. Ezekiel 22. I don't even know where in my Bible I am. Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> Look at the Lord tells Ezekiel. Ezekiel 22, 23. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, meaning uh, the people, Thou art the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. Those are preachers being used by the devil, like a lion devouring. Doesn't the devil devour? Keep going. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane, neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar." They've like tried to put a band-aid on the problem. Seeing vanity and divining lies unto the saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And look at God's heart. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the lamb, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. That is a tragedy. God's looking at all the apostasy. I was trying to find one man 
that would step up so I wouldn't have to whack them all and carry them away into Babylon. And he says, I couldn't find one. My challenge to you tonight, will you be that man or lady that will prepare his or her heart to seek the Lord so God can spare something around you because of your devotion and your faithfulness and your zeal for the Lord? Next point. I only got a couple of more short ones. Next one is number three. Go to 2 Chronicles 34. The need for Josiah. You know what we need? We need some more Josiahs. Because God says, I couldn't find a man, but he did find one named Josiah. This is obviously before the captivity, before Ezekiel. Josiah, go to 2 Chronicles 34. I'm talking about the great need for another Josiah, a man who will stand in that gap for God. 2 Chronicles 34. Let me show you some quick things about this Josiah. This guy is maybe the greatest king that Judah had before they were destroyed and carried away. 2 Chronicles 34. When I give you verse references, I just start randomly flipping in my Bible, and I'm like over here in Ezra. I don't know what I'm doing. 2 Chronicles 34. Nervous habit. Um, I want you to see, number one, I want you to see Josiah's start. Want to see how he started? 34.3. He starts ruling when he's eight years old. Look at 34.3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek. You see that over and over again? He began to seek after the God of David, his father. At 16 years old, Josiah sought the Lord. How about you, young man? How about you, young lady? You don't have to be 50 to start seeking God. You can start seeking him at 16 years old as a young man. Number two, verse number three, keep reading it. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. You know what Josiah starts doing? He starts purging the land. He starts getting rid of the junk. First, he sought God, and you spend some time with God. You know what's going to happen? That Holy Spirit's going to say, you got to get rid of that. You got to stop watching that. You got to stop going there. You got some pride, son. You got some envy, son. You got some anger. And God says, You better carry that filth out of this place. Verse 8. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. He seeks the Lord at 16. He starts cleaning up the land in 20, at 20. And at 26, Josiah starts repairing the house. He starts helping out at church. He starts getting involved in the things of God. He starts restoring some of those breaches. Are you helping out at church? Are you lending a hand in the things of God? Are you getting involved in the activities among the brethren? That's what he's doing. He says, you know, we got to fix up this temple. we got to start worshiping again. we got to get some fellowship back here, people. Verse number 15. You know what happens when they do that? <clears throat> they find the book. <laughs> 15, Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Because Josiah sought the Lord, started cleaning up his act, said we need to get back to the things of God, they end up finding God's word in the temple. You know a lot of good things happen when you get yourself back to church? You find some good stuff when you get back to church. Not because of any person there, but because of the book that's supposed to be there. They get back, he gets back to church, quote unquote, you know the, the illustration I'm saying, and they find the word of God again. You say, I didn't know that was in there. 
You start learning some things. But you know what's sad? That's how far Judah had fallen. They had lost the Bible in the temple. They had lost the book. Have you lost the book? So that's Josiah's start. And I would say that's a pretty good start. I want you to go to chapter 34. I want you to look at verse 23. I want you to see Josiah's safety. I want you to see the special safety and consideration that God gave to Josiah, even though the nation was crumbling and apostate and wicked and God was ready to crack him, God had something special for Josiah because he had a heart for him. See 23? They go find the prophetess because the place was so wicked there wasn't a decent guy preaching, so they had to have a prophetess. And 23 says, And she answered them, And you know what? I thank God for every mom, every wife, every lady that steps up. But shame on you men that there isn't a man in Judah that could be the one prophesying. It had to be a prophet is doing the job that some prophet was supposed to be doing. But more power to this lady. And she pronounces a prophecy. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place. And upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. The wrath of God is about to fall on this ungodly nation. You getting the hint? You're starting to see the application and the possible parallel. Because my dear brethren, like I said last week, I fly a flag. But if you think a country can do the things that we as a country are doing and not think the Lord is saying, I'm going to pour out some judgment. There's so many parallels between Josiah and us right now at the beginning of 2023. It's a comforting one you'll see in a second. But nationally, man, I'd like to read this to Congress. That the Lord is angry. The Lord is furious, and He's going to pour out judgment, and it's coming. It is coming. I don't want it to come. I don't rejoice in it coming, but God is not mocked. You can't thumb your nose at God like a nation has and expect God just to be singing, Oh, God bless America. I don't know about that. I think God will bless people, but I don't know about about the system anymore, man. It's sad, but I want to show you what happens to Josiah. Now that you're depressed, let me show you Josiah 26. And as for the king of Judah, you know, the one who sought me, the one who loved me, the one that read my word, the one who trembled at my word, as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him that you put yourself in Josiah's seat if you're seeking God, even though it looks scary and dark and what I said might have made your stomach turn. You just put yourself in Josiah's seat and let God say this to you. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. I want you to notice that God promises deliverance for Josiah from God's judgment. Why? Verse 27, because of his heart. Because of his heart towards God. 
That's the big idea of 2 Chronicles, because he prepared his heart to seek God. You see verse number 19? Look at verse number 19. You see how he responded when he heard the word of God? Verse 19. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. Woo! How do you respond when you hear the word of God? The tough stuff, like I just said. How do you respond when you hear those things about judgment and holiness and righteousness and preparing your heart and rending your heart and not your lips? How do you respond? Like Josiah? Do you rend your clothes out of repentance or do you resent the claims of the scripture? Oh, that's just an old book. Oh, that's just an angry preacher. Oh. Or is your heart tender? Does the book break you to make you better? Or does the book just make you bitter? Right? You've got to decide. This book is proving you, folks. This book is proving you. As much as you think it's helping you or you're searching it out, it's searching you. Amen. And it's proving you. And it's got something that it's going to throw right between your eyes. And you're either going to get hard and stiffen up and close it. Or you're going to humble yourself and say, Lord, let God be true. That's what God's looking for. You know, some of the kids might know this. If you ever got a spanking, I was Italian, so we got thrashings. But if you ever got like a, you know, you know if, if you stand close to the one that's swinging, you don't really get hit. If you ever watch boxing, that's what happened, right? You know, you, I watch these old videos of Tyson, right? That guy was, no, yeah, I won't go get this guy. You know, that guy was crazy. I wouldn't make fun of him in person. He'd knock my head across the room. But you know what? When he started wailing on somebody, you know what they do? They wrap him up. They get in really close because then those shots don't hit him. You see the illustration? If you get close to God, the judgment doesn't have to hit you. Josiah got himself close to God, and the Lord said, you know what? This judgment doesn't have to hit you, Josiah. I'm going to take care of you. Now, I don't know how far to stretch that. I'm not saying you're never going to see hardship in America if judgment fell on America. But I do know he told the Philadelphian church, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I'm going to keep you from that hour that's going to try everybody on the earth. I know this. The Lord will take care of you. No matter what's going on out there, the Lord will take care of the people that seek him. He can ordain the ravens to feed Elijah. He'll take care of you. You just got to get close. Verse 30. Verse 30. And the king went up into all the house of Judah, and all the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. You know what he did? He read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. The last thing I started with, Josiah's start. You see Josiah's safety finish with Will you follow Josiah's stand? He said, man, I'm going to take this book. I'm going to share with everybody I can. And I'm going to just decide right now that I'm going to keep it as best as I can. I'm going to love God with all my heart and with all my soul, which is the first commandment, according to Jesus Christ. Will you decide that you're going to hear the word of God and keep it? And in verse 32, I think it is, he says he starts giving it to everybody else. Amen. What a picture Josiah is. We need some more Josiahs. Go to chapter 35. Chapter 35 is our, again, we've got a couple of more quick points. Chapter 35 is about the ark. 
which is really about the presence of God in your life. It's about the ark of God and the presence of God in your life. Verses 1 to 3 is the death of, we see the death of Josiah in this chapter and the presence of God in your life. Verses 1 to 3 is the greatest Passover in the Bible. Josiah brings about the greatest Passover in the Bible. Have you noticed that when any of the good kings showed up, they reinstituted the Passover? Have you noticed that as you've read through your Bible? Why? Because the Passover pictures what? Your Passover lamb. You want to get revival going? You've got to get back to the beginning. You've got to get back to the life that God gave you by shedding the blood of a lamb to be your sacrifice for sins. And Josiah's getting the nation back. He's trying to. And in verse 1 to 3 it says, Moreover, Josiah kept the Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem, and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. And he said unto the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord. Now watch this. Put the holy ark, that's the ark of the covenant, in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build, it shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people Israel. Please notice in verse 3, this is the last time you see the Ark of the Covenant on earth. Right there. That's the last time the Ark of the Covenant is on earth. The next time you see it, go to Revelation 11. <clears throat> The next time you see the ark, it's in heaven. Don't ask me to explain what happened in between there. I could speculate like you. But let's look at Revelation 11. Look at verse number 15. This is the end of the tribulation now. Jesus Christ is coming back. And it says, And the seventh angel sounded, verse 15, And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were, past tense, angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. What a picture, what a scene. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. The last time you see the ark of the covenant on earth is with Josiah. The next time you see the ark, it's up there in heaven. What was the significance of the ark in the Old Testament? That's where you met God. Because God's presence abode over the ark. It abode on that mercy seat that sat on top of the ark of the covenant. So Josiah, God knows what's coming after Josiah. Nebuchadnezzar's coming, Babylonian captivity's coming, and he's going to carry all the vessels of the temple into Babylon. And you know what I think? I don't think the Lord wanted the enemies to capture that ark. I don't think they wanted to capture that thing that represented God. So God did something with it. When you figure it out, let me know. But I'll tell you this, before judgment fell, the ark was with the man that found the book. Hello, America. Hello, American Christians. 
before judgment fell, the thing that pictures the presence of God was with the man that found the book, loved the book, and was doing something with the book. And before judgment falls, God is going to be with the ones who found the book, loved the book, and are trying to do something with the book. And finally, uh, don't turn anywhere for this one, but finally, we have number five. We have the last four kings. Here is the end of the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why I didn't go over all this stuff is we kind of did it when we did kings, but I'll give them to you if you want them. These are the last four kings of Judah. First one is Jehoaz. Jehoaz, J-E-H-O-A-H-A-Z. Jehoaz. He's removed by the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt gets rid of him. And the king of Egypt sets up another king named Eliakim, sometimes called Jehoiakim. Sound it out. (laughs) Uh, J-E-H-O-A-I-A. A-K-I-M. He's set up by the king of Egypt. And he's removed by Nebuchadnezzar and he's carried into Babylon approximately 606 B.C. It's in this attack that Daniel goes into captivity. Third one. Jehoiachin. Sometimes called Jeconiah. Sometimes called Coniah. Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, right? The prefix is Je, Jeconiah. And then God takes it away and says, is Keniah a despised and broken idol? He takes the Je away because he's taken God away from him. And he's carried into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, 597 BC. That's when Ezekiel goes into captivity. And then the last one, He's not a king that God really wanted. He's like a puppet king put there by the Babylonians. Zedekiah, also called Mataniah. they got the same name. The guy's got two names, these guys, just because God wanted to make it interesting. Mataniah and Zedekiah is the last king of Judah before they formally and completely go into captivity, approximately 586 B.C. And do you know what prophet preaches to Zedekiah and pleads with Zedekiah to listen to what God says, Jeremiah. The weeping prophet pleads with him, preaches during his kingdom, even tells him things privately that Zedekiah says, what did God say, what did God say? And then he doesn't do what God says. And Zedekiah refuses to listen. And Zedekiah is the one that gets bound, gets his eyes put out, gets his children slain in front of him, and gets carried into Babylon approximately 586 B.C. And it's on, it, with him at the helm, Nebuchadnezzar marches into Jerusalem. Can you picture this? Can you picture this in your nation's capital or your cities or your streets? These enemies, these foreign invaders coming in, destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple burns the center of your nation, the center of your worship, your access to God, burns it. He carries the remnant to Babylon and all the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon. And it's from that scene, we'll see in a few weeks or months, the book of Lamentations, that book of weeping of Jeremiah as he watches the city burned and the people burned and the ashes and his eyes run down with rivers of tears because they didn't repent and they refused to listen. Tough book, man. 
I hope you get the picture. Go to 1 Samuel 7. We'll end with this verse. I got one big idea from the book of 2 Chronicles. <clears throat> Here it is. Simple. I've been saying it a hundred times, so maybe it'll stick. I threw enough mud on the wall. Here it is. <clears throat> if you prepare your heart, you will have good success. Amen. That's it. I got one amen. <laughs> if you prepare your heart, you will have good success. If you pray and get into this book and let God beat you up and, you know, come to church and go to meetings and kind of just let the Word of God do something for, you know, just all those different ingredients, right? I don't know. There's all those different ingredients. But if you just make that covenant in your heart, Lord, I want you. I want what you have for me. I'll humble myself before your Word. I'll seek you in prayer. I'll be there in church. I'll take that preaching personally. I'll try to lend a hand and do what I could do, right? You're just preparing your heart. You know what God says? I don't care what goes on in your nation I got my eye on you. They were, you know, they were a couple of weeks ago. This was it, man, right? This was, it was all about this. I've been wanting to do that all night, right? But you know what? It was all about who's going to get the gavel? Who's going to get the gavel? You know what God was doing? Yawning. What is it again? The 15th vote? The 14th vote? Ugh. You know what God had his eyes on? His people that were preparing their heart to seek Him. Folks putting stuff on doors on Saturday morning. Folks setting up lights on Sunday morning. Folks rolling in on church on Thursday night. No, that's where God's eyes are because God's paying attention to the people that are preparing their heart to seek Him. No matter what's going on out there. In 1 Samuel 7 verse 13, the Bible says, this is Samuel, it's obviously much earlier than these kings, but the thought is still the same. This is the first mention of the word prepare and heart in the same verse. And it says this, 7-3, I'm sorry, 7-3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, if, ooh, there's that word if again. If, 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 so much for predestination. If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts. Then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The first mention of preparing heart says this, if you'll get rid of the junk and put me on the throne, I'll take care of you. No matter who's encroaching, who's invading, who's threatening from the outside, if you're strong with me, you'll be strong no matter what the circumstances are. Like Josiah, the judgment of God doesn't have to fall on you if you prepare your heart. And even though the whole Christian world and your whole country may be circling the, the bowl, you could stand for God and be a burning and shining light if, if, if you want God enough to put them on the throne of your heart and prepare your heart to seek Him. That's the lesson of 2 Chronicles. Who will prepare his heart to seek God? You do it, success. You don't do it, failure. Every time, without exception. And that includes you. Right? You think you're going to be... I wasn't pointing at you, Mario. I was pointing, <laughs> pointing at the camera. That includes everybody watching home, watching here. You can't beat that principle. Let's pray.